you know, give your, you know, give yourself some grace and, you know, you have to live life. Hello and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. And um, just want to say that I hope you're all having a great start to July. I hope you had a good holiday weekend and I hope you're ready for the next few episodes where I'm going to touch on in some way, whether it's in the episode or in this beginning, just like I did last week, um, touch on pregnancy and how that affects nutrition and eating disorders and mental health and all that. So today, before we launch into the episode, I am going to talk to you about postpartum depression and eating disorders. So I linked a couple articles below, but one of them um, you know, says that women who had an eating disorder or have an eating disorder when they enter pregnancy are 30% more likely to develop postpartum depression. For those of you who aren't familiar with postpartum depression, it is depression that impacts women right after they've given birth um, up to you know a year after. And it can have devastating impacts on the woman, on the baby, on the family. It can be really you know sad and horrifying to have you know just such sad um, devastation <laughs> feelings during a time that should be happy and joyful um, and you know great for your family. So I'm going to read to you from an article on Eating Disorder Hope websites, also linked below, how postpartum depression can increase the risk of an eating disorder. So this is the reverse. So I just said, you know, women who had an eating disorder are 30% more likely to to develop postpartum depression. But women who had postpartum depression are also more likely to develop an eating disorder. You're like, that makes total sense. And of course it does, but there's a difference, you know, one group going into pregnancy, you knew you had the eating disorder, you know you're higher risk. Another group, coming out of pregnancy, you've never had mental health issues possibly, you develop postpartum depression, and then you are now more at risk for an eating disorder, and potentially that eating disorder can coincide with the postpartum depression. So at this time when you're trying to nourish your baby and nourish yourself, you're losing control of that. So I'm just going to read a little bit about that. So in a recent interview for the cover of Glamour's April 2017 issue, so obviously recent as in three years ago, (laughs) mega model Chrissy Teigen opened up about her struggles with postpartum depression, bringing to light a painful condition that many new mothers often struggle with in silence. This 31-year-old mother of a new baby is but one of the countless women who will battle with postpartum depression following the birth of their babies. According to Postpartum Support International Organization, one in seven mothers will be diagnosed with PPD, a serious mental health condition that can result in significant symptoms of depression and anxiety, right, as I said. So if you scroll down in the article, and I will read it to you, um, part of postpartum depression really can relate to having difficulty eating, which then can move them towards potentially having an eating disorder. So it says, what is the connection between PPD and eating disorders? Researchers from the University of North Carolina's Eating Disorder Program found that in various studies of women who were treated for anxiety, approximately 35% had previously suffered from an eating disorder. Having an eating disorder may have been seen as a risk factor during pregnancy, and the pregnancy postpartum period can be incredibly vulnerable. So that's what I said from the other uh, other article. 
but also it goes in reverse. I highly recommend you check out the article. It's really interesting. And if you are pregnant, know someone who's who is pregnant um, or, you know, had this past of um, postpartum and an eating disorder, you know, read this, learn something, help somebody and understand that you're definitely not alone. So today on the podcast, um, we're not really talking about pregnancy, so don't worry, just one part of the day. Um, We're talking to Rochelle Basil, who is, um, she's a running coach for Lift, Run, Perform. She's also the um, founder of Peak Movement Collaborative, a part of Lift, Run, Perform that works on integrating other types of movement like Pilates and meditation into running performance and also helps connect providers like physical therapists and others who are really attuned to eating disorders and mental health and the more human side of running um, with runners. So you're getting someone who is going to have a good outlook on um, treating you. She also is just incredibly knowledgeable about psychology, about the brain. She went to grad school for it and brings that into this conversation, which is lovely. Um, She currently lives in Colorado and is from New Zealand. So enjoy this episode, I will warn you before it gets started, the audio is not the best, Um, not not as bad as those first few episodes (laughs) if uh, if anyone's here from the beginning, but it definitely is a little bit hard to hear at times. So turn up the volume and sit through it because she really has a great story about her challenges with eating, about how she works with runners, about how she wants all of us to look at movement, in relation to our body and exercise. So I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, please give me a rating, a review. Um, you can send me an email at worthyourwhilenutrition at gmail.com and have a wonderful rest of your week. Right now, I, like the rest of us, am a quarantine professional. Yeah. Uh, I work with a number of athletes across, actually a number of, not just across the state, uh, all over the world. Um, I'm from New Zealand originally and have recovered from an eating disorder. Great. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, sort of where we'll start, where we will start. Um, so I, I've read and, and I'll post for my listeners a lot of the writing you've done about your eating disorder, but I just wanted to bring us back to the moment you realized that you had a problem and you needed to do something about it. Could you talk about, um, that realization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, I'll do a quick backstory of how we got there. Sure, yeah. As quick as possible and not leave out anything important. Uh, But, you know, as we know from the literature, there are a lot of, um, you know, predispositions and traits that sort of will leave one in, you know, more or less vulnerable to developing uh, problems with food, you know, be it, you know, OCD-like behaviors, depression, anxiety, um you know, insecurity, a lot of things. And, you know, those elements are sort of triggered at the perfect time. I think that it's, you know, it really leads to the perfect storm for an individual. And I think for me, growing up in New Zealand, I definitely always had sort of like a high, I mean, I still do, a high, you know, baseline level of anxiety. But I think what was definitely the most dangerous for me was the fact that I did not run in high school. Mm. And I didn't run until the very end of my senior year and, you know, hopped in a national race and was recruited from that, both from 
day, you know, day one when I arrived in um, the United States, I, you know, it was imposter syndrome, like perfect conditions. I felt, yeah, you know, like a fish out of water. I didn't know how to go to practice. I didn't know how to feel. And even though I was, you know, on a, you know, I was obviously very talented. I just felt like I didn't belong because we'd be in the locker rooms and everyone's talking about all these races and going here and going here. I'm like, all just running to self. And I was like, oh my God, like I, I don't even know what to do. And so I just doubted, I doubted everything that had gotten me to the point that I was, which, you know, admittedly had been a very quick process of like starting to run. Um, and just kind of loving running in the process. And it, you know, I mean, I guess I think about it, the further I'm removed, it's, it's crazy because I think there's high school and, you know, those very influential years. And I went to an old girls boarding school. And surprisingly, I feel like there really wasn't, I mean, there, I mean, there could have been, and I, I wasn't even in my universe, but I really didn't even know about eating disorders. I had, like it wasn't even like on my radar, the whole mm-hmm. like body image thing or not, you know, needing to be like super thin or so it was crazy. But I think there was definitely, I mean, you know, I had these predispositions and, and right. not only, you know, being anxious, I was also on the other side of the world by myself. Yeah. Like a huge uh, change in your life. So I also had a um, number of people who were, like in my close circle, I guess, like on the team and in living situations, we definitely had now, like, you know, hindsight 2020, some very um, unhealthy um, patterns with food and exercise. And so, of course, they had been successful too. So I was like, oh, shoot, like, this is what I have to do, you know, with, mm. if Julie is having, if Julie is having hospital far, well, I need to catch up for lost time. So I should probably just have a quarter. Um, right. And it's, and I mean, this is the dangerous thing about eating disorders too, right? Like you don't realize, um, you don't realize what's happening. This isn't a conscious decision. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what I really want to do? <laughs> like, I really want to have anything. Like, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Yeah. And that's but, a good way to put it too, because I feel like so many people who who have never had an eating disorder or have never, you know, known someone who had one think that somehow all of the choices are really conscious. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, it's your unconscious brain and it takes, I mean, to re the brain is, and this is the beautiful thing about like neuroplasticity, the brain can be rewired that, you know, it's behavior and it's habits and it's addiction. And so when you're tired, when you're vulnerable, your brain is going to take the the path of least resistance or what your normal is. Um, so be it, you know, if you're, you know, restricting, if you're, you know, over-exercising, if you're binging and purging, like whatever, you know, and it's the same with any type of addiction. And um, it's so ingrained in sort of our, you know, ancient, like, reptile brain, um, which is what makes recovery a hard thing. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I went, you know, I dropped a bunch of weight very quickly um, as one does when you're not eating and running on a division one college team. And unfortunately that was, you know, I mean, I think rapid weight loss initially is a way sort of 
in, in, in a performance sense, is rewarded, right? Because mm-hmm. you're seeing these instant gains, right? Your workouts are getting faster, you're placing high. And then by the time that you start having stress fractures, getting injured, and repeated instances of these things, it's too late. Yeah. And especially yeah. if you're in an environment where no one's, well, it's, it's two sided, it's like any relationship. One is, if no one is going to intervene, if someone doesn't know what's happening to them, and then also, as you know, you're a dietitian, you work with, you know, patients all the time. Yeah. You can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped, right? Yeah. So oh man, I had that conversation last night. <laughs> when eighteen-year-old Michelle is in denial that she has a problem, the last the last thing in the world she's going to listen to is someone telling her she needs help right. because you know she's fine, right? She doesn't want to hear it. She's got a million reasons why she's fine. Um. And look how fast I'm running because that's all that matters. You mm-hmm. know? And, yeah. and, you know, um, so that, like, I actually didn't really last very long in college because I got so destroyed. But I am so thankful that I, you know, there was a couple of rounds of, like, injury, try to run, injury, try to run, go to therapy, try to run. And then I will, and I think this is on the piece you were alluding to that you must have read that one morning I, and I'm like, so, like, every single day, I'm just like, thank God, it's like I have this kind of light bulb moment. It was during winter break, I think, was it, my, it was my sophomore, I may like maybe my junior year. I think it was, yeah, winter break, my junior year, I was getting dressed for practice, and I remember I, like, you know, I guess there was a, a uh, quarantine break. A vertical mirror That's behind okay. me, and I like bent over to like put on my tights or something, and I looked over my shoulder, and I saw my whole back, and just like, you know, like you know, it looked like you know my hips were gonna stick out through my skin, like, right. and I was just like, oh my, like, and I think at that moment, I was like, holy shit, like, like I could die from this, like this, yeah. this is a problem, and. That was like the moment when I was like, I, I can't run. I have to, like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, so that obviously was not met particularly well um, with the coaching staff. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, thankfully, my mom was super supportive and she's a big advocate for, you know, finishing what you started. And I got on the plane and said I was going to get my degree in America. Um, so I stopped running. Uh, you know, constantly lost my scholarship mm-hmm. and then didn't run I was like five, at least five years. So, <laughs> didn't run for a very yeah. long time. So for you, it yeah, seems yeah. like what helped turn you from having, you know, no motivation to recover, or even really realizing that you had a problem was kind of coming to terms with the the physical and medical side of things and realizing like, oh, you know, this this could be a lot worse than I'm giving it credit for. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I think when I realized that, you know, it's not just like, oh, you could get a stress fracture or a stress reaction uh-huh. or, you know, you might, you might not sleep very well because you're hungry or, you know, you can't concentrate as well. But it's also hard, you know, because people with, you know, in particular with anorexia too, right? We tend to be perfectionist, mm-hmm. um, very goal-driven and motivated. So, of course, you're getting, you know, you have a 4.0. You 
you know, doing all the doing all the things, checking all the boxes in an achievement sense, but the fact that, you know, you're so exhausted and so fatigued, literally every day feels, now that I've run a marathon, actually, I don't know what is easier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the days are just, are just long and you have, you know, and you're socially isolated because you're too tired to go anywhere. Yeah. Or, you know, connect with people beyond what you already have to do and, you know, heaven forbid you have to go out and, like, eat in public with people. Right. Um, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, thinking about, like, so yeah. I have so many conversations with clients, you know, who are in the point where you were, you, you seem to say your freshman year of college or sophomore year of college where you're like, no one's going to tell me that I need help, right? Like, and no one's going to be able to convince me to get help. And... I, you know, as a dietitian who's working with them, like doing my very best to convince them that they need to take this seriously. And I, I don't love the scare methods. Um, but honestly, sometimes that's, that's what helps them to realize like, you know, this, this could be medically significant in my life. Uh, this could lead to, to death. It is like one of the most, um, lethal mental illnesses. So I'm glad that, you know, you brought that up because it's something has to be brought up with patients uh, more often than I would like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and now in like my coaching sense too, or even just, you know, with friends who run and, you know, and some people like, Oh, well, like everyone has an eating disorder. And I'm like, no, like, let's <laughs> not like, just yeah. like, like, yes, it's good that we can like talk about these things and like, that I can hop on here with you and we can talk about it, but I don't think we should, we should, we should, it's, should not be normalized right? right definitely like the you know when i read comments from the athletes i work with that they um you know they had a cheat day so now they feel bad or something like that to me that's always like a, uh-oh like mm-hmm. you know and once i get two or three of those then i'm like hey like maybe we should talk to someone about your feelings um, right yeah and as a as a run coach, you know, and I mean, and whatever you're doing, I think it's so important to stay. I mean, it's not only important, it's like vital and necessary from a legal standpoint as well. Yeah. Um, to stay within your scope of practice. And it's something that I'm really passionate about is connecting my athletes and friends and just anyone in the community, not just with, you know, good nutrition, but, you know, any expert in the field or someone that can help them be it you know, rehabilitating from injury or if they're, you know, going through a divorce and maybe they need to talk to someone or, you know, talking to a registered dietitian or not getting your nutrition advice from, you know, some, I don't even know, I don't Magazine, I don't know. (laughs) Some magazine that says like, you know, we should, you know, 1,500 calories a day or something, you know, something. Um, It's just so important for people to, be connected and and I think too when you distribute like the treatment the team or the support people are getting they're sometimes a little more open if they feel like the whole story is not if one person doesn't have the whole picture right Um, definitely which from a holistic standpoint um in the way I like to work with my athletes is tricky um but I guess it's kind of I don't know if the government is ever a good analogy but I think, like, in terms of, like, clear, I think of it kind of like clearances, right? Like, no one has the full picture. Like, if one has their little designated box that they're helping for, they have, like, pretty big. 
So I want to step back and you mentioned like you didn't run for five years after that realization. Mm -hmm. What was it like to start running again for you? Because I hear (laughs) over and over again from people like they're so scared to go back to exercising because it might mean the eating disorder comes back too. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting too. And I, I mean, I, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse being self-aware, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was also in, like, a much different place when I started running again. Um, by the time that I decided that I wanted to run, and, and during that five years of non-running, there were definitely times when I was like, I want to run again. And I would run two days in a row, and I would immediately catch myself, sort of, like, restricting or, like, having negative thoughts. And I was like, okay, like, we're not ready. Mm-hmm. Like, this like we're not, we're not doing this. We don't have you know. I was in a PhD program. I was married. You know, we were trying to save my like. You know, I had my whole life, and you know, I've I've known a lot of friends who have struggled with you know like even like minor eating pathology or something. And for a lot of them, like getting pregnant has been like a, a like this like complete one eighty shift for them because they realize it's not just about them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um. And I kind of feel like I felt similarly, like, I was like, oh, well, I can't just take me down. You know, when it was just me in college, like, oh, that's fine. Like, it's only me. I can get on my little path and ride it out. Um, but, you know, now I have my husband and we have a dog and I was in a, you know, graduate program. So there's so many other pieces of life that were non-running, right? So right. I was looking yeah. for a way to fit running back into life in a healthy, sustainable way. Right, instead of life into running. Exactly, you know, trying to fit a a square into a a pythagorean. So, you know, there were, like, attempts to start running, and, you know, I was not there yet, and and one day I said to my husband, and we didn't date, he didn't know me in undergrad when I went through all of this, but, you know, he knows knows everything. Um. About me, and so when I said, like, you know, I think I want to run again, just, you know, successfully from school and everything, then he kind of looked at me and that's a good idea. Like, do you think, like, and not in a discouraging way, but just in like a, a really constructive way, you know? Yeah. Like, do you, yeah. Do you think that's a good idea? Are you going to, like, you know, we, we're, you're not doing this to yourself, um, you know, like getting hurt and, you know, harming yourself intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and I was like, no, no, like, I, I think I'm good. Um, so, you know, I just started running, and I wanted to run a four-hour marathon. And I think some, you know, I don't, I mean, I know, and I've seen some people can return to sport or, you know, their, their sport that was perhaps a trigger for them, so in my case, running. Um, you know, and some people can't. And some people can still return to sport, but maybe not necessarily in the same, the same sport that was perhaps a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe transitioning to something just where there's no, no, selection, you know, no neuro wiring. You know, say maybe I took up cycling or something. You know, I could still have that competitive outlet of that's what I wanted. Um, but for you, when you went then, back, you didn't feel, like at least that particular time, you felt like it was different or you did not have the same, you know, mental space that time? Yeah, it was definitely, and I think, like, just being able to look at things, you know, it was like a wider 
lens, I guess, you know, they're just more important things. And so, you know, obviously when you don't run for five years and then you start training for a marathon again, I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, but you know, in, in a lot of <laughs> it's cases, not a normal right, you've done course of, with, um, <laughs> event. Like, you know, I did, you know, lose some weight, right. You know, my body just, yeah, of course. you know, just like kind of came back to equilibrium and at that point, um, you know, where I wasn't living my best graduate school life, where I think, you know, we're probably all pretty high-functioning um, alcoholics for the most part, um, which isn't a particularly great culture either. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, and so I was able to return to running, um, and then I guess it did take a shift from this, like, um, you know, running for, you know, my four-hour marathon, um and then, you know, in 2018, I actually, what did I run? Uh, 2.39. So I did, you know, I, you know, was, um, you know, competing at the elite level um, and did for a couple of years um, with some injuries. Um, and it's hard to know, you know, I've had so many deaths and these things and my bone density is good, but I do have a, um, I have lupus. Mm-hmm. autoimmune disease, and I've spent um, six years on a pretty high dose of prednisone, right? Um, yeah. which has definitely left my bones um, somewhat lackluster. So right now, we're just trying to find the balance of, um, you know, weight-bearing exercise for bone, bone health and strength and general aerobic fitness. Um, but now I spend, you know, more of my time doing non-impacty sorts of things. Uh, I mean, I love Pilates, I love yoga, cycling. Um, I recently enjoy walking, which is like, for me, <laughs> that I'm like, wow, I, like, who am I? I used to have no tolerance for that. I'm like, I love walking. It's, yeah, that's know, so funny because... Like a date, you know. Yeah, I Go feel ahead. that way right now. I, I'm uh, 12 weeks pregnant and I... Oh my God. Uh, thank, thanks. Yeah, I told Mary recently, and she was uh, very excited. <laughs> but um, oh, I am uh, struggling because you know I love running, and I um, have been like trying to be okay with you know not being very fast. And and surprisingly, it's like okay, this walk is fine. Like I'm good with this walk, <laughs> um, or like run walk or whatever it ends up being. Yeah, and what a great, and I, you know, a great community. And I think, too, in terms of recovery, I mean, the community that you find yourself in or put yourself in or find, you know, however you end up in these networks of people, it's so important to make sure that you are surrounded by, you know, one, people who are going to call you on things, people who are going to are gonna help you, people who sort of always have an eye out for you. Because I think, too, it's very easy to look at people and, you know, just assume someone is or isn't okay or um, just kind of, oh, I won't, like, oh, she's, you know, Michelle looks like she's lost a lot of weight. Maybe I should say something, you know, and especially as women, too, I think we tend to just be like, oh, okay. Like, I'm just, you know, bystander effect, right? Mm -hmm. Someone else will say something. Um, Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, and you probably know that, I don't know, the statistics, but it's not really my... um, research around that, you know, when these problems typically are identified or when someone 
when someone finally confronts someone or is like there to help a listen, it's usually too late. Like yeah. that person is already down the rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, definitely. And so I, to speak. yeah, I think that's a good, a good point to bring up in terms of like, and we talked about earlier, you know, not, not when we were recording, but um, it is, really challenging to know what someone else is going through or how how long they've been going through it based on what they look like or even, you know, how they may come off most of the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I wanted to ask you about. How do you, how do you work with your athletes in a way that, you know, maybe doesn't, um, doesn't emphasize the same problems that you sort of found when you had a running coach for the first time? Yeah, and um, let me unpack that question. Yeah, there's not worded well, but <laughs> but I guess. Oh, and I'm sorry, that wasn't like. A, yeah, I mean, just like in, in terms of like, how do I support? How do I support my athletes? Yeah, so I guess like yeah, I, I mean, this is a question I've asked um, run coaches, track coaches, like all kinds of sports coaches. But how do you? you know, encourage athletes to chase their dreams, whether it's a faster time or whatever they're working towards without promoting some of those negative behaviors that can lead to um, what you experienced as a, as a runner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, my number one sort of my, my coaching philosophy and my intent for everything is to help my athletes, you know, develop long-term like change and sustainable habits Mm -hmm. Um, and, and running and running really is the proxy for that. Right. So when, when life is imbalanced, everything is easy, right? When our world is in chaos, it's very easy to cling to the things we can control. Right. So maybe our paces and, Oh, how can we make our paces get quicker? Oh, maybe we could drop it. So when I start seeing comments about getting heavier or, you know, how it might be easy, you know, things might be easier or I cheated or, you know, oh, I feel bad because I had seats in a bear. I'm like, no, you probably feel bad because it's the weekend and you're burned out from working a hundred hours this past week. Right. Um, yeah. You know, give your, you know, give yourself some grace and, you know, you have to live life. Um, obviously there is, you know, there is sometimes the times you sort of dial in your nutrition um, and maybe not eat there. Maybe, maybe that's the night before a marathon if that doesn't fit particularly well with your stuff. Um, but there are plenty of very successful people who are athletes who will, you know, they're their go-to pre-marathon meal. There's no good or bad. It's just balanced. And I think, I mean, I think I'm fairly, my athletes sort of, t- like I'm easy to talk to. I've had a lot of them sort of come to me um, if they're struggling with something and I'm also not afraid to pull someone, um, if I think there's something going on. Um, if she wanted my, she's a dear friend of mine, an athlete, but one day, you know, she pulled me and, oh, she left like a comment and I was just like, I have to pull her and didn't late, but it was like very aggressive in my approach. So like, we have a problem, like you need help. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there were, there were tears and crying on both ends and it's like, I know, I know. Um, and then after I was like, Oh, Rochelle, that was like, that was pretty harsh. Um, yeah. so of course I pulled it back and I'm like, it's only because I care so much. And like I said earlier, like I wouldn't wish the path I was on on anyone. Um, mm-hmm. 
so for me, it's not easier to be like that meanie or that person to intervene versus a friend, right? I mean, it's, it's my job to care about these people. Right. And I care about them more than like almost anything else in like on this planet. Um, so, you know, every now and again, when I, you know, think about, oh, I could just let that slide or let see what happens. I'm like, like, no, you need to act now before it's too late. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like a really good North Star because worst case, I was totally wrong and they're totally fine. And that's amazing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's and, uh, preferable. And, and actually I've had like, you know, a friend before that, we come be like, Hey, like, you know, you know, it looks like, you know, you've lost a little bit of weight. Is everything okay? And it's like, I'm totally fine, but you know, I'm so stressed out at work and you know, there's 20 other reasons. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, you know that I'm here. You need to talk. Um, and it's like, oh, crisis averted. Um, and then obviously you apologize. <laughs> right. Like, Sorry about that line. Um, but I think that means a lot just to kind of stick your neck out and just check in on someone. Yeah. And, I, and you never know, like, I think what someone needs to hear. And maybe, maybe it's not that they really have a struggle with their weight, but maybe they just needed to know someone cared about them. And by you asking, you show that too. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I guess so one question I have from runners I get a lot who listen to the show um, and people who maybe, you know, are are returning to running after an eating disorder and they they just don't, they don't know if they can go fast, right? Like they, they want to be able to run, but they don't know if they can go fast. And do you have any advice about how can someone feel like they are accomplishing or should be proud of their running without worrying about times? Yeah, I mean, and to the, the balance piece too, and my beliefs and like coaching philosophy and adaptation, I mean, if you commit to a process you will see improvement, right? And running is not a short, you know, it's not a sprint. I mean, it, it can be. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Our if you're, kind if of you're running. Training for, yeah, if you're training for, like, longer endurance events, this is typically where we see, like, more eating pathology. Um, you know, I think it's not even focusing on, you know, trying to run certain times. I think the more pressure that you put on your on yourself and the expectations, it just takes away the enjoyment from running. And you know, that's one thing I sort of always go back to with my athletes. It's like, well, why are we here? Why did we start running? Oh well I started running as a stress relief or I started running because all my friends were this and I'm like, Great. Look where we are. We are like a yeah. hundred miles southeast west of where we want it to be. Like how on earth did we get so far removed from like from like you know our alignment right so that there let's just you know also running without a walk running without like a gps or any data you know other than your you know your trusty kindness um you know if you just believe in a process and you know if you have a goal and you know my goal right now is just to be able to work out or run or like just move my body right without getting hurt, you know, and that's a, a perfectly fine and admirable goal. Yeah. You know, will I ever run a sub 240 marathon again? Will I break 16 minutes? And if I feel like, who knows? I mean, I don't care. Right now, I, I'll, I'll, right now, I don't, maybe I will in a year or two. Right. Um, 
that, you know, goals change and, you know, the expectations and don't, I mean, I guess if your goal is to run fast, but honestly, I think if anyone is coming, returning to running fairly recently after having recovered from an eating disorder, and I say recovered sort of in like quotation marks, yeah. because it's really not like, oh, I went to therapy, I, you know, now I see my therapist every other month, like I'm recovered. It's like, it takes a long time to not even have those thoughts anymore. Yeah, um, a long time. Yeah. And you know, and I've been meditating for the last, pretty consistently for the last six to eight months. And, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I really don't have, I don't have these thoughts of like, oh, I wish I looked like this or looked like that. I'm like, this is just what my body wants to be like. Um, but, you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I don't really need that or want that. Like, now I have the ability not to act on that. Right. You know, it's more, yeah. you know, it comes into my universe and I'm like, oh, and you're gone now. And that's, and that's it. Um, mm. And so I think if you are very close to that initial recovery or recovery from relapse, I think probably the worst thing you can do is try to run for performance. I right. think you should run for joy and for lifestyle and for health. Um, and I, I mean, I'm just thankful that I'm able to move in a non-triggering way. Right. Um, because I do definitely have friends and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, fellow athletes and competitors who aren't able to get back to running because, you know, the second they put their running shoes on, I mean, it's, it's, con- it's classical conditioning 101. Right. They can't disassociate the two. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting because I, uh, like, so, I mean, I had an eating disorder. That's why I got into this field and I have people ask me all the time, you know, like you run, like, how do you do that now? And I'm like, I spent many years like running really slow. <laughs> I never took like any time off as, as you did, but I just never had a watch. I never like even knew what I pace I was running. I was just like running cause I liked it and it felt good. And, um, and, and that's, you know, interesting when people ask like, how did you get back or, or try to, you know, race again. And it it's hard. Like it's hard to push myself to run um in a race way. But then, you know, once I found how to do it without hurting my body, it it does it does bring a different level of joy than just running um itself. Yeah. And that's amazing that you were able to um you know, go through recovery while still running. Um, I definitely do not think that was an option for me because I was so, you know, I was, yeah, nine, you know, 19 years old and was so performance driven. Right. You know, the second I, you know, ran a mile that, I mean, we used to just hammer every single run. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but you know, as soon as I ran a mile that I perceived as slow, I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this because I wasn't, and not that there's a right or wrong reason to, I mean, there are right and wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> but um, shoot, where was I gone? Um, like a right or wrong you know, reason, the reason to I run. Was running, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the reason I was running then was for performance. It wasn't because I had this like deep love for moving in the outdoors like I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't chase those performance goals. So I was like, oh, I have no interest in doing this. Um, right. And I think a lot of people come, to- come from that side where it's like, 
it's only about performance. So then it really does trigger their eating disorder. Whereas if you're able to find more of like a love just for the movement, then it's not as triggering. Mm-hmm. 100% more amazing. Uh, and then the last question I ask everyone is just what is your favorite food? You know, I knew this was coming, and <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. So I have favorite genres of food. Okay. Um, so I love Mexican food, and I love Asian food. Okay. Um, and and none of those things. I would say the food I have been eating the most this quarantine is Ritz crackers. Oh, <laughs> me too, know, man. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about these damn Ritz crackers. We've been buying the, I don't know, the family packs, the Marilyn's little white costly. Uh huh. And I feel like every time that comes out of the office, I'm just like opening another pack. And he's like, oh my goodness, like, you're going to turn into a Ritz cracker. <laughs> um, it's so funny. I've never been into them before in this way. But yeah, I guess maybe that's maybe one of my current favorites, which is ridiculous. Because I love to cook really good food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. I right now I eat a lot of crackers because I just like always worry like what what my stomach is gonna do. So I'm like, all right, well I'll just eat these because <laughs> I know we'll be okay. Um, but thank you so much, Rochelle. It was really really great to have you on the podcast. Of course, thank you so much.